and welcome to She Said, She Said. I'm Laura Cox Kaplan. Alison Stanger has emerged as a leading voice in the debate over free speech on college campuses. She is a tenured professor of political science at Middlebury College in Vermont. Her story shows tremendous leadership in standing up to encourage debate even when it's a viewpoint that you may not agree with. Allison is a terrific example of why our She Said, She Said conversations are so important. Allison, welcome to She Said, She Said. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Let's start with the incident at Middlebury College mm -hmm. back in 2017. You had agreed to facilitate a conversation with conservative author Charles Murray. Tell us what happened. The American Enterprise Institute Club on campus invited Charles Murray to speak at Middlebury College, and because they knew he would be controversial, they wanted me to not just moderate, but ask the first three or four questions. Mm -hmm. And I agreed to do that because I'm a Democrat, but obviously my, all my classes are nonpartisan. I saw it as a great way to demonstrate to my students, you know, my commitment to a free and fair exchange of views in every class I teach. But things didn't go as planned. Their uh, students and protesters shut down the speech. We had a backup plan. We went to a remote location and webcast some semblance of an exchange with fire alarms going off and people trying to crawl in through the window. And the upshot was because we actually continued to have our exchange, it enraged some protesters so much that when we left the building, we were, we were attacked by a mob that included some outside agitators that I think really whipped things out of control. And I wound up with whiplash and a concussion, and uh, it was a pretty unexpected experience, shall we say. It's the last thing on earth I would have ever expected would happen on Middlebury's campus. And I think it surprised many Middlebury people as well. Did you anticipate any controversy as it related to this conversation? Oh, sure. I mean, look, the thing about controversy, it, is, it can often be a catalyst for students really growing and learning something new. So the, the fact of the matter is uh, I had actually taught the symposium on the bell curve that ran in the New Republic in some of my courses at Middlebury 20 years prior when and that came out. And the bell curve is his famous, yeah, his Charles Murray's, In other words, on the, the most controversial piece. I mean, students weren't protesting what he was speaking about at Middlebury, which was his current book, Coming Apart, which really forecasts what happened with the 2016 elections. Mm. Protesters were concerned about a book he had written nearly 25 years ago, this bell curve book, which, which I had taught in one of my courses on American constitutional democracy precisely because it was provocative. And why that's useful in a classroom is that you can, when you get students provoked, you can ask them, okay, you don't like that conclusion or whatever it is you don't like about this. Okay, why? Is it the logic leading to the conclusion? Is it an assumption that's being made? Let's unpack that argument. And through doing that, you can really have some meaningful conversations. So in no way was I expecting a provocative speaker to spiral in this way, but that, as I've written elsewhere, is very much a product of the kind of polarized times we're living in. Could you discern from the crowd what they were most angry about? 
It's a really interesting phenomenon that took place because I've spoken to many students afterwards, and I do know that many people who went there wound up doing things they weren't anticipating doing. And the reason was that there were some students who were so convinced that his presence on campus was a direct assault to their very humanity. And they were very emotional about it, and they were clearly in, in pain, emotional pain. And so it's an ordinary human response when you see another human who's really suffering to want to kind of bolster them, to stand in solidarity with them. And so I think that's why a lot of students who went there perhaps to listen wound up standing up, turning their backs, shouting, doing things that it's not as though it were premeditated, hmm. but it's very much a part of it. But it's the way... It's, it's the unfortunate way that groupthink can take place in social settings. You know, we see it on social media today, too, right? right. It's not just in an auditorium at Middlebury College. It's all over the place. Right. Yeah. What is it like at Middlebury College? Is it unique as it relates to college campuses around the country? What, what is Middlebury like? Well, Middlebury is an extraordinary place, and I wouldn't want anybody to think that this incident involving me would represent Middlebury College. I've taught there for over 25 years. There are extraordinary students, extraordinary fellow faculty members. Great place to send your kid to get a wonderful education. It's an exceptional educational experience. At the same time, it's situated in Middlebury, Vermont. And Vermont, in 2017, was very much a bubble within a bubble. Mm. What do you mean In by the that? sense that any college campus is a bubble that's sort of removed from the real world. Things go on on college campuses that would never take place elsewhere. But it, it, at Middlebury, it was kind of doubly reinforced by that bubble being situated in another bubble, which is the state of Vermont. Mm. Remember, Vermont produced Ben & Jerry's ice cream, but also Bernie Sanders. Right. So we really have unusual politics. The Republican Party has basically written off Vermont for years because there's no point in traveling there for the national agenda. Mm -hmm. Although I should say we have a Republican governor now. Interesting. So Vermonters are interesting. They vote for the person rather than the party. Yeah. So this was this this happened after after the presidential election in 2016. Well, it was after. Yeah. Well, it's just. Two less than two months after the inauguration. Inauguration. Okay. So the transition is taking place, and people are in shock. We had had protests on the campus, and so I think people came to this event thinking, "This is we're drawing the line. This must stop. Trump must be stopped." And they got confused about what Charles Murray was really coming there to say to them. Right, and the conflating of yeah. things that really are not necessarily related. I have exactly. no idea who Charles Murray voted for, but. He was actually on the record as being anti-Trump, and so. <laughs> they were they were chanting Charles Murray, I can't remember, racist, anti-gay, and he actually was on the record supporting gay marriage. So it wasn't that people were thinking, indeed, and a lot of people acknowledged they hadn't read anything he'd ever written, but there was a website, the Southern Poverty Law Center website, that declared him a white nationalist, and that was all people needed to know to know what their politics needed to be. And I just see this as not something unique to a situation on a college campus, but this is our national politics now in a certain sense. You've got very polarized situation where people are driven to have the right political position based on what other people say the right political position is. Right. And obviously you can't have a political dialogue if people are that highly polarized. Right. I'm going to ask you a very provocative question. Sure. Happy to answer how, it. How much do you think so much emphasis on safe spaces and trigger warnings mm-hmm. and 
and sort of a much kinder, gentler environment. How much does that play into sort of a mindset around don't say anything that might upset me or Mm -hmm. hurt my feelings Mm -hmm. or might cause me some kind of distress? How much of that plays into this notion of sort of the inability to think critically and have a dialogue with somebody who you know has a different point of view than you? Yeah, there's some definite confusion over those issues. And, you know, there's a a really legitimate dialogue about what kind of an educational environment you want to provide for the students. Obviously, everybody should feel safe. Mm. Otherwise, you know, you have an educational environment that's only serving a proportion of your population. But what does safety entail? You know, we can all agree it's physical safety. Does safety entail you can't hear things that you don't like? That's where it becomes a problem. And for me in the classroom, you know, I say to my students, um, this is going to be a place where we're going to speak candidly because I don't want students censoring themselves. Because once people are censoring themselves, you kind of undermine liberal education. So in my class, I tell people, look, we're going to have a free and open exchange of views and we are going to treat each other with respect. And you may have some difficulty doing this because it's not modeled for you in our larger discourse. You can't watch television and see people having a, well, there's some exceptions. Right. But in general, it's people screaming at each other, yelling at each other. So you've really got to walk them through what it means to have a meaningful intellectual conversation. And I make it easier for them by saying, look, we're all human. If we unintentionally say something that offends another human, we do the obvious thing, we apologize. Mm. And then we move on. If you don't know why you offended them, great, that's a teachable moment. We can talk about why that was offensive to you. But I don't want you self-censoring. It's okay to make mistakes because humans make mistakes. And I find once you lay out the ground rules like that, you can have incredible conversations. So the safe spaces thing, you know, I think that's overblown in the media uh, for another reason, which is namely that we forget the history of college education. So institutions like Hillel provided safe spaces for Jews. The Newman Society, safe spaces for Catholics. This, there's nothing wrong with a safe space. It's just when it begins to interfere with um, learning, it's a problem. So maybe the way to say it is, we can have safe spaces on college campuses, but the entire university cannot be a safe space. The classroom cannot be a safe space if that means that we're gonna be censoring what we say and how we think. This experience mm-hmm. really, really catapulted you into the national spotlight in a way that you might not have anticipated before. I mean, my guess is this was pretty surprising, the fact that this happened at all. I know. And yeah. the fact that you yeah. have gotten so much attention from it. Yeah. What has that been like? Well, it's funny. It, you know, I had a concussion, and I'm still... You know, I'm still being treated for my injuries. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, so, but I knew until I was done with most of the physical therapy that, that I should not be speaking out at all about any of these events. Because you're just not clear, right? Well, my with brain wasn't working, you know, my brain yeah. wasn't working. It would be a stupid thing. And, you know, you're very emotional. You can say things that sure. you don't mean and, and, and all of that. But um, so I was silent and turned on all media requests and invitations to testify before Congress until my major concussion symptoms cleared. How long did that take? That took until September. So what would that, like six? Six months? Six months. Wow. You know, where I felt, and then after six months, 
most of the regular physical therapy had been completed and I felt okay. Yeah, I'm confident. That really sounds like a really serious concussion. I mean, six months is a long time. Yeah, you know, there's all kinds of research that shows that concussions affect females, can affect females much more profoundly than males for whatever reason. And I think, you know, I had a neck injury in the tour interactive, Mm -hmm. so that that, that causes additional problems as well because you can't treat... You can't treat the neck injury until the concussion symptoms have settled down. Mm-hmm. And so the neck then just gets all crunched up. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, concussions are, and neck injuries are very tricky business. So if you know anybody with a concussion or a neck injury, cut them a lot of slack because it takes, it takes a good amount of time to recover. So since that time and you had an opportunity to recover, you have testified before Congress. Yes. There's been a lot of attention focused on you and the fact that you did step in to facilitate this dialogue with somebody that you knew had a different point of view than the majority of the students there and had a different point of view than you. Totally, yeah. Um, But you've had an opportunity to talk about that. And what is the response to now that the, you know, now you've had this national attention focused on Mm -hmm. it? What has that been like? It's interesting because I have received all kinds of support from the world beyond Middlebury College. And I'm not really in a position to comment on what's going on at Middlebury because I have been on leave. Mm. Uh, f- this is my second year of sabbatical from Middlebury College. And that was a planned so, sabbatical, as I understand correct, it, Correct, right? correct. That was extended, yes. So yeah, I'm not a good person to comment on what's going on there. But in the larger world, man, I am just struck by the number of people who actually agree with me. Especially as we're in the run-up to the midterms, we're talking right before the midterms, people are sick and tired of this hateful politics, the demonization of the other side, all of these things that make years of American constitutional democracy sort of grind to a halt. It's very terrifying. We don't want to lose this precious inheritance that we have. And I think there are many people who share that sentiment and want to see our politics change. It's tough to do, in my view, when you have a uh, person in the position of president who is modeling precisely the opposite behavior. But that's a, a, something we all have to struggle with, how to deal with that. How did, you, how did you feel emotionally about what happened? I mean, this was a very big deal, and it was mm-hmm. scary, I'm mm-hmm. sure. Mm-hmm. Terrifying, in fact. Yes. yes. How did you deal with that emotionally? Well, it's, it's, a hard, it's a hard thing to come to terms with because in some sense... Uh, my institution betrayed me. Right. You know? And students, presumably. Yeah, and some students. Of your own I mean, students. basically what it amounts to is people didn't give... I said this was something worth engaging, and people said, no, you're wrong, and we're not going to listen to you. So they didn't just shut down Charles Murray. They shut down me, a fellow faculty member. So that's, that's tough to process and think about and emotionally wrenching because that's, that was my home. Your home shouldn't treat you that way. Right. How do you move past it? How do you sort of deal with that and go forward? Yeah, I think you just have to invest the time and energy in sorting out what it meant and what lessons you want to take away from it. Like any emotionally traumatic experience, it's something that you just have to to live through. Live Live your way through the answers. But to me, it was very important to figure out what it meant, what the meaning of it was. And going out and talking about it for me is a way of making it mean something, helping me to understand what it meant, to see the larger issues involved, to realize that, you know, I'm just one small little human 
with a problem. And there are many other humans out there with way worse problems. And we're in a situation where we have, you know, this precious gift in the United States of America of a system that's been functioning for 200 plus years brilliantly. And now it seems in peril to me. So that makes me want to speak out all the more because there's something to lose, right? So I know you've been away from Middlebury College now for a couple of years. Yeah. Do you have a sense of what's changed, if anything, in that period of time? Again, I haven't been there, so I'm not really a good person to comment on it, but I know that there have been a number of wonderful events that have taken place, some of which might be considered controversial and that have gone forward without anything like what happened to me. Yeah. So all of that's a positive thing. I think in many sense, you know, the interesting thing about what happened at Middlebury, which was unfortunate for Middlebury and for me, is that other institutions have been able to learn from that mm. and learn lessons and take measures so that something similar doesn't happen to them. So what kinds of things? What what types of things are they putting in place to prevent something like that from happening? Well, first, just being aware that something like that could happen mm. is one thing, but then really thinking through, you know, who should be invited on campus and what should be the mechanism by which we decide that? And And one of the things I've often said that makes sense to me is if a faculty member I happen to believe that if any student organization invites a speaker on campus, they should be allowed to speak. Now, as a faculty member, you know, I don't have to attend provocateurs. I want some intellectual content. But I think a pretty good insurance policy, if you want to know something that's worthwhile, is to see if another faculty member is involved in either moderating or a department is co-sponsoring. And I think if you just let the faculty decide... You won't get the Richard Spencers and Milos on campus because faculty aren't going to want to be involved with programs like that. So you solve a lot of problems if you just respect the views of faculty. And in the Charles Murray case, if people had just given me the benefit of the doubt, if they had said, Alison Stanger says this is worth engaging, okay, I think she's crazy, but I'm going to give her the benefit of the doubt. We wouldn't have had this situation. But they didn't, which I, that's one of the elements of this story that I find so remarkable yeah. because you had fa- you've talked about the fact that there were faculty members that yes. were part of the protest, not just students, not just outsiders, but Absolutely. your colleagues. Yeah. And why? what is it about the culture that made that okay? It's in part the culture because there has been this sort of strand of ideologically driven research on college campuses. In other words, people doing research that's very much gained, aimed, you know, following Karl's, Karl Marx mm-hmm. in making the world a better place. They think mm-hmm. they should be, their scholarship should be actively be a part of what they see as the solution as opposed to detached, disinterested inquiry, the search for truth, the sorts of things that I think the academy is all about. So that's one piece. And Republicans will not Republicans, I should say conservatives, will often be angry at me for talking about Donald Trump because they'll say, what do you mean? These trends have been emotions for decades. Right. And they're right. They're right about that. But I think the Trump piece plays in, in a really interesting way because it just sets people on edge and at each other's throats. And when people are dehumanizing the other side, these kinds of things happen. So that's what really happened is I, I was rendered invisible. I was in a sense dehumanized. And so the things that happened to me don't seem to matter until you really stop to think about it. And for me, the big takeaway there is, hey, people, 
don't demonize and dehumanize the other side because that's where when ter- really terrible things happen. And I think as a, a scholar, I would challenge anyone to show me an instance in human history where dehumanizing your opponents has led to positive outcomes. I think it's really tough to, to find that, and that's worth reflecting on. You know, the, the nonviolent approaches to political change, in my view, are always the better way to go. I just, I just think it's, it's so important to, to, even if you disagree with someone profoundly, to try to put yourself in their shoes and try to understand why they might be viewing the world in that way. You don't write someone off just because they disagree with you. In fact, for me, I have so many uh, conservative friends from whom I learn so much. And I've made, one of the wonderful things about this experience is I've met these amazing Republicans. <laughs> amazing, whom I disagree with. But it's so fun to argue with them. Right. You know, you really learn something by engaging with someone who's intellectually serious, who, who might disagree with you. Yeah, well, and you can typically, by reaching out, can find other things that you do agree on. It's totally true. You're not going to agree on everything across the board. You and I won't agree on everything across the board. But my guess is we'll agree on an awful lot. And I certainly agree with the fact that having the debate and engaging with people that are different than you, who have a different point of view, is really important. Absolutely. And necessary. Absolutely. And we we can agree. I think a lot of us can agree that the United States of America is a pretty extraordinary place. It has lots of flaws. We've got some work to do in terms of revisiting our history. And I can say more about that if you like. I think we, we've kind of whitewashed some of our history. Where it would be much better just engage with some of the controversial topics in our history more directly than we've been doing. So elaborate on that a bit. Well, it's really interesting because let's take American constitutional democracy. I like to teach courses on that. Mm-hmm. And race in America is really a central and divisive piece in our politics. And we don't deal with it in an honest and candid way. People are terrified to deal with it. We, yeah, we want to avoid the topic. Yeah. And that's very dehumanizing <laughs> to people of color in this country. Mm-hmm. You're sort of writing them out of the history. And so part of what I want to do as a professor is write them back into my courses, deal with these problems directly. I hope to teach a course called This is America, where we will focus on race. It will be a prominent part of the syllabus. And I think that's just a necessary condition for for getting this country back on track. We kind of need a symbolic refounding, if you will, that acknowledges past wrongs in a really direct way so that we can build a better future together. In addition to the core content, Mm -hmm. don't you think you also have to teach your students how to talk about difficult topics that they've not necessarily grown up knowing how to talk about. Absolutely. I mean, they're, I'm never one for wanting to study someone who's deliberately provocative. That doesn't interest me if someone's just out to provoke. But what does interest me is a carefully constructed argument with evidence and logic that some people might find controversial. To me, that's the great material for the classroom. And yes, we, we definitely need to, to teach people how to disagree, not just because better learning takes place in the classroom, but because you can't have civil discourse in a democracy if people don't know how to do that. Congress can't do its work in the polarized state it's in today. So in my view, if we can't get this right on our campuses, we're in deep trouble. So I want to be there fighting that fight. Yeah, it's fascinating. 
Your educational background is particularly interesting as I was reading a bit about you. Math, economics, and ultimately a PhD in political science. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Did you have trouble making up your mind? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I still have trouble making up my mind. I think everything is interesting. <laughs> no, I think that's amazing. Yeah. And I, my question for you is how much did that diversity of your educational experience contribute to the way you see the world? That's a really awesome question. I'm glad I'm glad you asked it because I think it c- contributes profoundly. And in some sense, you know, I always followed my intellectual curiosity and did the things that I wanted to do. And um, I've had a lot of interesting experiences along the way, but I think that diverse or eclectic, if you will, education really enables me at this point in my career to see things that I don't think others see as readily. And it's fun to put those different pieces together. Mm. So I'm doing this new research on the impact of the internet revolution on democracy's public square. And that's really fun because it's kind of in my sweet spot because with the math background, I can understand the, the tech arguments. The algorithms and the... Absolutely, yeah. algorithms and you know how social media works, how computers are programmed, all those things, because I've done a lot of computer programming. But on the other hand, I have this deep and abiding interest in philosophy. So that really comes together in a nice way to think about policy issues related to artificial intelligence, for example, because if you look at how the field of artificial intelligence was created, you know, you think of it as being a computer science department now, robots and so forth, but at its birth, it really is this amazing amalgamam of uh, philosophy, psychology, mathematics, logic. So the issues that we're facing today in our democracy related to technology are particularly fascinating to me. And I'd like to think that, oh, this is my moment. You know, I may have waited all this time, but now I can put pieces together that I, that I hadn't done previously, and it's sort of exhilarating. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It sounds like it illuminates the topics that you're talking about in a way mm-hmm. that must be fascinating for your students. Yeah, it's really, really fun for teaching and really, really fun for my writing, too, yeah. to be able to bring those pieces together. You've mentioned teaching courses on the Constitution in particular. What mm-hmm. else do you teach? Have, have you been teaching at Middlebury? Oh, I teach. I'm, I make up my classes. I like to <laughs> create interesting classes. So, so I teach a course on empires, which was an attempt to put American power in some sort of comparative perspective. I teach a course called The Politics of Virtual Realities, which foreshadows this interest in technology and politics I just mm-hmm. mentioned. I teach a course on the political development of Western Europe, which is really useful because, you know, part of the problem, I think, with many young people today, when they look at the United States and find it so lacking, is they're lacking a historical perspective. Right. They're also lacking a comparative perspective. So the political development of Western Europe is a great course to teach. You know, students who protested Charles Murray, a lot of them think of themselves as Alexander Hamilton. Mm. They love the musical Hamilton. And you can show them through looking at European history that actually, you know, you're... You're not Hamilton. You're Robespierre. That's a different animal. And uh, look where that led. Teaching that course is, is very exciting to me. And then finally, I teach American foreign policy, which is a huge course and brings together many of these themes. What drew you to teaching in the first place? It's, it, you know, I am the daughter of five generations of college professors slash ministers. I broke the chain. I did not become a minister. <laughs> so it's kind of in my DNA. My grandfather was a, a college president, and uh, 
I just find teaching so rewarding and my job so rewarding because I love writing, I love scholarship. But for me, teaching that one-on-one -on -one contact with an individual, it's your insurance policy at the end of the day that you are making a difference in the world. You know you are with your students. And so I really love that combination. I feel very fortunate to be able to have a career where I get up every morning and think this is something I really want to do. Yeah. It really means something to me. And I'm also a mother, since this is she said, she said. And, and you know, what is motherhood but an educational enterprise? Indeed. Right? It's the Indeed. same thing. So, so it, it comes together really nicely yeah. that way as well. Heterodox is an effort among academics to create a broader conversation about speech on campus, and they've been around for a while. Mm -hmm. Is that organization, or at least the approach that they're taking, something that you think could be effective in terms of moving this dialogue related to free speech on campus along? Oh, absolutely. Uh, Jonathan Haidt is and Greg Lukianoff have a new book out. They're doing great work. Heterodox Academy is, is doing great work, and hopefully it's going to move the dialogue forward in, in the right direction. I myself am not a member of Heterodox Academy. That's just simply because I'm not a joiner. Mm. I sort of feel that a response to tri tribalism in our politics is to not belong to a tribe, or maybe try to create the tribe of people who hate the idea of tribes. <laughs> Which you know another word for you know what another word for that is the tribe of people who eat the idea of tribes, Americans. Think about it. Mm. You know because what's yeah. an American? American is someone who has an allegiance to an ideal, mm -hmm. and, and that values what, free speech and expression. Yeah, and that's what keeps us together as a people, even though we come from these diverse backgrounds and yeah. histories. What other ideas do you see percolating out there that you think can be helpful in terms of moving this topic along beyond the heterodox approach? But do you see other things that folks are doing, other efforts that they're engaged in that can be really useful? Well, I was involved in a wonderful effort at Princeton University. There was a workshop in February of 2018 called The University Left to Right. And this was Robbie George from Princeton and Steve Macedo from Princeton, so liberal and a conservative. And they brought together faculty from all sorts of disciplines at Princeton, but also outside of Princeton to just kind of brainstorm on these issues. President Eisgruber, who was the president of Princeton, was there from 8.30 in the morning until 10.30 at night without a break, which is demonstrating extraordinary commitment to the importance of these issues. And we reached a consensus there on the mission of the university. So was this a like a roundtable discussion? Or? It was a, it was, it was, I would call it a workshop. Some of us gave papers, I gave a paper, but a lot of people who were there were just there for the dialogue. Mm -hmm. And so we had some really challenging, wide-ranging discussions. What was interesting to me is views converged on the idea that we don't need an affirmative action program for conservatives on campus, mm -hmm. right? Because we all know they're underrepresented. And we could talk about that if you're interested, but that's not the, the solution greater attention to viewpoint diversity, yeah, that might be smart because people with different views add something to the mix. Mm -hmm. But everybody kind of agreed that the university should provide an arena for truth-seeking, that it shouldn't be taking a position itself. The job of the university is to make that environment possible in which people can pursue truth and reach very different conclusions. And so that was a very positive thing to me. And I see that kind of percolating out in the larger space. So in my view, I'm optimistic about where universities are going. That if you really stop and think about what American universities should be doing, it's pretty clear that they should be doing this, doing what, what 
what I and others have suggested they should be doing, <laughs> what Princeton agrees they should be doing. And there will always be a small minority who disagree. But then my response to them is, okay, so you want to shut down speech, you want to censor, you want to deplatform. Who gets to decide? And say you even figure out a way to decide. This is always my favorite question. Okay, so you disinvite Condoleezza Rice. And then what? What follows from that? What contribution has that really made? If you really stop to think about it, we all do this. It's a human thing. We do things for emotional reason, reasons. And I think, you know, the job of education is to get people to kind of interrogate their emotions a bit, you know, with reason to, in a sense, bring emotion and reason together or have enlightened emotion, if you will, because emotion is obviously important. But in my experience, when people behave out of emotion alone in our personal lives or in politics, it produces huge unintended consequences. So my job is to get people to stop and, and think for themselves. Yeah, and think very critically. Yeah, and think critically. Think critically. Absolutely. So it strikes me that you know, a lot of the challenges that we are dealing with on college campuses don't just start in college, right? Yes. The idea that we're sending kids off to college perhaps without the ability to think as critically as what they will need to, to, to think about. They've not learned those skills earlier. And I realize yeah. that college is yeah. the place where you're really supposed to fine-tune that. Mm-hmm. But what about the idea of starting much earlier? Yeah, I think you put your finger on something important because in our quest to diversify the curriculum and get students to know about all these things that were crowded out before, civic education has kind of dropped out. Yes. And I personally believe we need to revive it in a kind of enlightened way. And I'm involved in some efforts to do so. Uh, and it's actually very fascinating. There's a good, great project at Harvard that Danielle Allen is working on. They're basically devising a civic education curriculum for Massachusetts public schools. And I find that effort so fascinating because they are digging up things that I want to use in my classes that really broaden the curriculum, allow it there to be more vo- you know, greater voices, better representation, so it's not all white males talking, but at the same time, keep those awesome white males mm-hmm. because they have a lot to say, sure. <laughs> you know, and, and there are ways to do that in a really compelling way. And I think that's what we need at the K through 12 level. And I'm, I'm, I intend to be involved with that. Students need to know how it's supposed to function, how it's different from other systems around the world. And, and a lot of important things follow from that. So, and, so I think the critique that this is somehow demoralizing for students of color because it's just a bunch of, or women, let's say women, because, hey, let's face it, black men got the vote before we did. Uh, we want to talk about that. There was, a, it was a, there was a political choice, you know. Frederick Douglass decided, this is all the system can bear. <laughs> Sorry, ladies, you were really helpful for me with the abolition, but I don't hold it against him, you know. <laughs> but, but this is just the, just the reality. Um, there's there's wonderful room for people of all persuasions, male, female, every color of the rainbow, to identify with some of the ideas that the founders had, even though they are a bunch of white males. They had something to say. I think Hamilton, the musical Hamilton, captures that so effectively. Totally agree. Yeah. It's the most amazing thing I've ever seen. Yeah, and that is that is something that we can really tap into because... Americans have responded so powerfully to that. And it's, it's the world responds to it, too. That's the thing that just breaks my heart about what's happening in this country today. I was having an exchange with a former student in Afghanistan today about the importance of freedom of expression and democracy. And he's there in that war-torn country 
believing in these ideals that come from the American experiment. And these people are watching us and they're bewildered because we're supposed to be the example of what can be accomplished with the right attitude and the right ideals. And we are failing them. I want to do everything in my power to try to get that back on course. Because it's not just for us as Americans, it's for the world. These ideals matter to the world. But it's a bigger discussion, right? Yes. To sort of superimpose all of this on one particular person or leader. It's not just about that. Mm-hmm. It certainly mm-hmm. contributes yeah, yeah, yeah. in many ways, but it's a much bigger conversation. And it a is. much bigger, you know, we are where we are for a lot of reasons that have resulted in us reaching this particular point, which yeah. I think is important that we not lose sight of that. Yeah, and I think I think we also, one thing I think is important too is we need to not lose sight of the fact that the founders were believers in God. They were deists. Right. This sort of deist belief is baked into America's DNA. And so it makes me sad to see people on the left think that religion is part of the problem. Although on the other side, when you look at what... I'm going to get everybody mad in your podcast now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you look at what some Christians are saying. It's not very Christian if you go by the book. I agree. So we all have a lot to work on, is what I'm saying. I agree. It's not one side or the other. We all have a lot to work on. Again, you and I agree on an awful lot. Not everything, but an awful lot. (laughs) So let's talk big picture. How Mm -hmm. has this whole experience changed you? It's brought out who I am. I don't think it's changed me. You know, it didn't take getting a concussion of whiplash being assaulted by a mob to come to these conclusions. I've always had this sort of Socratic approach to education from the time I started. That is nothing new. But what it does give to me is this sense of commitment to a set of ideas and values that I would be willing to fight and die for. You mentioned that you are from a long line of academics and ministers. ministers. (laughs) Are you a person of faith? Yes, I am. And what role does faith play for you? Huge, huge role, uh, because it gives you a constant sense of perspective. And I think faith, I'm very involved with faith communities in Washington, D.C., because I think they're a powerful potential source of the change I would like to see. Because think about a church community. Any church community is going to bring together people of all different socioeconomic groups, backgrounds, and they're going to be part of a community. It's kind of a microcosm of America. I mean, I have an interesting situation in my church in Middlebury. I'm a, I'm a congregationalist. We have in our church the governor, former governor, governor of Vermont, a Republican, who actually vetoed gay marriage. It passed and became law over his veto. The legislature overruled him. So he sits in one pew, and in another pew sit the two lesbians who are responsible for the striking down of the Defense of Marriage Act. And they're friends. They attend the same church. I find that deeply inspiring. Yeah, so my whole take on faith is I feel a real affinity with people who are members of a faith community. What I'm suspicious of of people who identify as something but aren't a member of a faith community. Mm. And there are plenty of those in the United States today. It's like an, it's like an identity badge you can wear. And that's deeply problematic to me. What do your kids think about this experience that you've had? It's kind of funny because um, they're interesting to talk to because obviously they're they're young. <laughs> so, yeah. but they're adults. They're they're adults. They're Nine, adults. Nineteen and twenty four. Yeah. They can explain why someone has a particular view, and then we can unpack it together, which is a lot of fun. But I think when when some of the Charles Murray stuff was still unfolding, and we we're kind of processing it around the the dinner table, 
they would get me a little bit irritated because they are always playing devil's advocate and giving the other side, well, you could say this, you know, what if you invited Hitler to campus? Would that be okay? And they were really pushing me on it. And I finally said, why, why are you doing this? And they said, well, this is what you taught us. <laughs> I said, you know what? For a month, I would just like you to say, I agree with you, mom. <laughs> I kind of need that right now. And then we can go to back on all this questioning and debating. Right now, I don't want you questioning me. Just say you agree with me. Awesome. <laughs> so they did. <laughs> But yeah, they're they're wonderful. Yeah. Both of them. That's fantastic. Yeah. So we ask every person who comes on the podcast mm-hmm. to leave us with a single piece of advice or a life hack. It could be advice you give your kids. It could be the advice you wish you had when you were 25. Maybe a mantra for life. What is yours? Oh, that's a great question. I have so many that I could repeat to myself. I have so many. I mean... I think a really good life hack would be just swim in your own lane because people are going to try to tell you what to think, what to do, how to be successful, but a successful person is at peace with themselves and knows what's meaningful to them and what makes them happy, and that's got to come from within, not from without. So I like that metaphor of just swim in your own lane because that means keep moving forward, put in the effort, don't look at what people in the other lanes are doing. And I think that leads to thinking for yourself, and I think that can really lead to, to happiness as well. Because people will give you a lot of advice. Uh, about whether few, you want it or not. Whether you want it or not. <laughs> but just swim in your own lane is good advice. Make your own rules. I guess that would be another way of saying the same thing. Allison, thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. It was a wonderful conversation. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Yeah. You can learn more about Allison from our website at www.shesaidshesaidpodcast.com. There you'll find some additional show notes as well as some photographs from today's visit. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please feel free to leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can also follow us on social media on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. As always, thanks so much for listening. Mm